Thank you, worship team. Great job. It is a great winter morning. I'm so glad y'all are here. In all honesty, there's no place in the world I'd rather be than um, learning beside you as we study God's Word. My name is Amy Foster. It's my great privilege to be a part of the teaching team here at Women in the Word. It's also my great privilege to work here every day. I'm part of your women's ministry staff. So thank you for being here with me. If you're at the West Campus and joining us today, we're so happy to have you a part of this Bible study too. So welcome to you. Well, we've pretty much got Christmas packed up and behind us here at the end of January. I was going to share one little Christmas experience with you. All of my boys are big boys now, and they're all college and high school students, which if you know, if you have students like that, you know they get these really long Christmas breaks. And in that week or two after Christmas, when I'm getting up and going to work every day, all my kids are laying around in their pajamas. You understand what that's like? So one particular morning, I'm rushed to walk out the door, and my dishwasher is full of clean dishes, and all their breakfast dishes are piled up in the sink. (laughs) So you know what I said as I was walking out the door? I said, before I get home tonight, I would love for that dishwasher to be unloaded, and I would love for those dirty dishes to be in the dishwasher. So a few hours later, I get a funny reply. I get a text from these boys. And so you don't think ill of them. I'm just going to tell you up front, they're good boys. They're respectful. They're obedient. (laughs) They like to yank my chain a little bit. They send me this text. um, And it said, Mom, here's the deal we are offering. We will unload and load the dishwasher if in return you bring home lots of Cane's fried chicken for dinner. (laughs) And it says, fair enough, with a question mark. And I laughed at that, and I have to think, how many times in every day do we think through, fair? Is that fair? Fair enough? I'll give if you give. I'll meet you in the middle. Um, We're born with this idea that life needs to be fair, and it starts at the earliest age. If you don't believe me, walk down to the preschool and hand everybody a cookie. And I guarantee you, they'll look at their cookie, and they'll look at the cookie beside them, that one's bigger. That's not fair. Um, it's, we don't teach it. We don't learn it. It's born in us. We come out that way. And our view of fair always includes things going favorably for us. That is our human condition. And God actually gives it a name. God calls it flesh. I think this is so interesting. Flesh is this nature within us that at its core is self-centered, self-seeking, it's material, it's often sensual, and it's immediate. And flesh screams out at us every minute of every day that feeling good right now is the most important thing, that getting the biggest cookie, or at least a fair share of the cookie, is the most important thing. Flesh makes the priority of our lives feeling good and feeling fair right now. And flesh evaluates everything as it's happening right now. Flesh is immediate. Flesh is always comparing. Flesh is always looking at the cookies around us. But we don't have to live very long before we understand how difficult it is to live with this flesh nature. Because once we live for a little while, we realize this is a flawed world. This is a sinful world. And life is not always fair. And life is not always just. And sometimes terrible things happen to good people. So that's a really frustrating way to live. But here's the good news. God has told us we don't have to live that way. God has told us we don't have to live totally governed by flesh that screams out inside us. God's told us that we can live in a relationship with him because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And when we live in that relationship with him, he puts a new spirit inside us. And flesh doesn't go away, but we get to choose now if we're going to draw on this new spirit or if we're going to rely on flesh. So apart from God, the quest for fair can consume your life. It can consume you, it can fill you with frustration and complaint, and it can make you pretty constantly disgruntled and discontent. And that's exactly what was happening in the psalm that we studied this week. We studied Psalm 73, and the writer of this psalm has his own little fairness meter, and it's sounding the alarm, because life doesn't look very fair. And it sounds like it's confused, and it's disoriented, and it's discontent, and it's a complaint. 
That's how Psalm 73 begins. Psalm 73 is the first in a a collection of psalms that are called Psalms of Lament. And we know what lament means, right? They're written by individuals who are experiencing some kind of distress. Maybe it's emotional distress. Maybe it's physical distress. Maybe they're being hunted and pursued or treated wrongly. But these are people in distress. And you probably won't be surprised to know the majority of the psalms are psalms of lament. The majority of them are all lament. And I think that's probably likely because all the psalmists live in this world, and they live in a world that is not always fair, and it's not always just. But what I love about the Psalms, they're not just human laments, they're laments from God's people. They're from spiritual people. So they're people of faith, and we see them demonstrating great faith while they lament, and that's a beautiful thing. In the Psalms, we see these people bringing all their experiences straight into the presence of God. That's what our prayers are. They're bringing our personal experiences straight into God's presence. So they might sound like they're complaints tossed out into the universe, but they're not. They're experiences brought before the God of the universe. This is how the people of God will always manage their emotions. These are great examples for us because we are emotional creatures. So we see these examples of bringing our experience fully into God's presence wrestling with them there. God can handle that. God can handle our questions and our doubts. As we bring them into his experience, we focus on God's truth and his perspective. And it's this process of just taking our fragile soul and lifting it up to God and opening it. And we tell him, okay, you said it right. That's what we see in these prayers of laments. And the truth is this works because prayer has never been about changing God. Prayer's not about changing God. Prayer's about changing us. And that's what we see in these prayers. Um, Psalm 73 was written by Asaph. We talked about him about two weeks ago. He was a Levite. He was appointed by David, so he lived around the same time, and he led worship. And here's another thing you need to know about Asaph. He's a poet. He's a poet, as all these writers of the Psalms are. So when we're reading poetry, our task is to slow down and pay attention to the specific words that the writer is using because the words are purposeful. They're there to stop us and make us really think and understand the position they're in. So we're going to read through Psalm 73 that way today. Um, Begin with me. Open your Bible, and we're going to start with the first three verses. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Okay, we see right away that this is a lament, and he's experiencing some confusion, and it comes because he's watching the arrogant and the wicked, and they are prospering. And that doesn't make sense to him because he's basing this all on the truth that God is good. And it sure seems like God's goodness is going to the wrong people here. So he uses great imagery throughout this thing. And it starts with this imagery of my feet had almost slipped. My feet had almost stumbled. And I thought, that's great imagery for us because just a month ago, we had an ice storm that covered our city in a slippery surface and shut us down for four or five days. So we understand what slippery surfaces are like, don't we? We understand that that means dangerous. That means precarious. All the commentaries that I read, they believe that expression near slipped, almost stumbled. That means slipping out of bounds, perhaps slipping into sin, losing faith in God, losing confidence in God. Okay? So a dangerous, precarious place to be. And when he's confused and disoriented, he's saying, I'm on slippery ground here. So he's aware that it's dangerous. And on the slippery road of confusion, he looks around for a safe place to put his feet. And all through this psalm, we're going to see There are safe places to put your feet when things are slippery. Safe places. The very first safe place, you set your feet on truth. Look at the very first word in this psalm. Truly. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's a profound word, and here's what you need to know. Truly is a word of faith. It's not a word of feeling. 
He's not saying it seems this way. I'm feeling like it's this way. He is starting with what is true. What is true is certain and unchanging regardless of our feelings and regardless of our circumstances because everything he's feeling is confusing and unclear and uncertain. So he's going to start with what is certain. God has told us that he is good and God has demonstrated that he is good. Psalm 25.8 says, good and upright is the Lord. It's a great idea to do a little study and look at all the places where God tells us that he is good. One of my favorites is Jeremiah 32.40. And I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. That's God's heart for his people. He will not stop doing good for us. That's true and that is certain. But the problem with that is we don't always know what good means. If God is always doing us good, we don't always know how to recognize good. We believe that all these lesser joys, these good, material, sensual, tangible things we can experience here on life, we think that's the good that God lives to give us. And we're a little um, confused in that aspect. That's not always what he's talking about. Um, We believe because flesh tells us God exists to give you these good immediate things and we want it all here and now. But that's actually um, a wrong assumption. So when you're faced with uncertainty, you start by setting your feet on truth. And when you're faced with uncertainty, you begin with what is certain. God has told us what is certain. He's unchanging and he's always good. And we act in faith when we choose to believe that. So we rest our feet there and we approach our faithful God focusing on who he is instead of focusing on our confusion. Then Asaph goes on and he describes these arrogant people. And they're described as arrogant and wicked. And notice carefully at first, he's just describing their immediate condition, their present condition, and he's describing their material condition. Okay, let's start reading uh, beginning in verse 4. And he's describing the people who are arrogant and wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. I do think we need to stop there and just recognize in our culture we think fat is bad. Apparently, in their culture, they thought fat was good. I think fat meant you had an abundance. And so that was something um, that they thought was a privilege here. Um, They're described as people who experience comfort and ease in all of life. They have no struggles. They're healthy. They're strong. And he acknowledges, look back at verse 3. He acknowledges, I was envious when I looked at their prosperity. When I looked at their material possession, I was envious. And that's because that's a material view of the world, okay? It says they have no pangs until death. Not only does that mean their lives are comfortable and without struggle, it also probably means they don't have any worries about their spiritual condition. And we know that's tragic. We don't know if they're deceived about their spiritual condition, or we don't know if they're just being bold and arrogant before God and not worrying about it. But clearly they're folks who are living for the moment and having a fine time of it. And from where the writer is sitting, he's looking out at that and he's thinking, that kind of looks like goodness to me. Those cookies they have over there look pretty good. That must be God's goodness. And he's confused and he's disoriented. Then he goes on to describe their behavior. And again, read slowly and pay attention to these words. Begin reading with me in verse 8. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. Okay. Well, the psalm opened with a description of these people as arrogant, arrogant and wicked. So let's pay attention to the words. Arrogant means they think they're better than others. Um, That's their attitude, and it's revealed in their speech and in their behavior. Scorn means they're just expressing contempt for others and contempt for God. Malice is an important word. Malice means they have a desire to harm others. 
Okay, so we've gone beyond just kind of selfish people, people who will act fully on their selfishness and harm others to get what they want. You know, I would describe them as rotten to the core, but that doesn't sound like poetry, so we're not going to do it that way, but I think they are. I think they're controlled by flesh. I think they're not afraid of God. I think their rotten soul is fully displayed in their rotten speech and their rotten behavior. And then it's pretty much um, highlighted with this statement, how can God know? How can God know? They are speaking a lie about God. They are suggesting that God doesn't know. They are suggesting they can fool God. They can hide from God. And in my opinion, that's just reckless arrogance before God, and there's no truth in it. I immediately thought of Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You are acquainted with all my ways. They don't know God if they think they can fool him. So all of this together creates the lament and the confusion that we see in Asaph. It seems these rotten people are experiencing all the good things that God has to offer. How can that be? How can that possibly be? And as if that's not enough, we've got a second complaint that we're adding to the list here. Read with me in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Okay, now we understand it's a compound lament. He's not just lamenting because good things are happening to the wicked people. He's lamenting because good things are not happening to him. He is struggling. If we look at the language, some translations said plagued and punished. Others said stricken and rebuked. But all of them said all day long, every single day. We understand what that feels like, don't we? They're not talking about an occasional difficulty. They're talking about lifelong struggles that are there when you go to bed at night and they're still there when you wake up in the morning. Life is hard for them. So this is the crisis of faith. And here's the interesting thing. It comes as a result of comparing. Often comparisons lead us to a crisis of faith. He wants to believe this truth that God is good to those who are pure in heart. But he sees all this goodness going to the wicked. So he begins to wonder, has it all been in vain that I've been following God? Is there really value in trying to live a holy life and follow a holy God? And that's a huge crisis of faith. And it's a common crisis of faith isn't it? I think if I asked you to raise your hands, I'm not going to, have you ever felt this confusion? Have you ever asked this question? We all have. We all have. Maybe we know good people who've lived honorably and circumstances have come along. They've been accused of something they didn't do and their reputation has been destroyed. Maybe we know honorable business people who practice sound business practices and someone comes in and says something untrue and their businesses are destroyed. Maybe we just know individuals who have been on the receiving end of malice. They've been hurt. I personally have been in a situation where I kept finding myself having to go to court. And I would sit in these courtrooms and think, where is justice? God, is it going to arrive soon? Because I keep having to come back to court. These are common circumstances because we live in a world that is not fair and is not just. So how do we reconcile God's promise, God's truth that he is good when it seems like bad things happen all around us? The confusion is normal. How we respond makes all the difference. Because remember, we're going to respond like people of faith. Asaph knows it's confusing. Asaph knows it's a slippery spot. Asaph exercises great wisdom, and we see it right here in these words. He decided not to speak it out loud. I would have betrayed a generation of children if I'd said this out loud. That's really interesting. Um, He's recognizing, if I say this doubt out loud, there are less mature people who might be pulled right up here on this slippery spot with me. There are less mature people who might step right into doubting God, doubting his truth, doubting his goodness. And so he resolves, I'm not going to say it out loud. 
And I think that's a great application for us. We live in an age when authenticity and honesty is valued and encouraged, and that's a wonderful thing. But I don't think every doubt needs to be spoken out loud in public because we risk pulling people into that doubting place with us. So he does the beautiful thing, and he takes that doubt straight to God. The other thing I noticed here, you know, we live in an age with so many resources. Um, We have so many spiritual resources. And the temptation for us is to take our confusion and doubt and go to a great author or go to a great counselor or go to a great seminar or talk to our great friends. And those are great resources, and I'm sure Asaph had great resources too. But what do we see him do first? He goes to God. He goes to God, and he offers his complaint there. And when we go to God, just like he does for Asaph, he starts untangling all that confusion for us. That's exactly what happened. And the turning point is right there when he says, when I went into the sanctuary of God... When I tried to understand it on my own, it was wearisome. It was a burden. I could not reason through it. So what did I do with that confusion? I went into the sanctuary of God. If you don't get anything else out of that psalm, that's a profound takeaway. That's what we do with our confusion and our questions. We take it into God's presence. All right, this is the place in the psalm where things start getting better, where all the disorder starts to become ordered and all the confusion begins to fall away. And it happens because Asaph lets God be the teacher. He lets God be the teacher. I personally believe he gets quiet before God in this instance. And when you let God be the teacher, you have to take God's perspective. That's a safe place to put your feet. One commentator said, this is exactly how people behave when they are conscious of God. And don't we all think we're conscious of God? If we're conscious of God, the creator of the universe, why wouldn't we enter his presence and drop our confusion there and let him untangle it for us? I think it's interesting that's not a passive process. It's not an emotional process. It's a determined choice, isn't it? I can stay over here and wallow in my emotion and my confusion, or I can resolve to turn to God and give it to him. Be still and know that I am God. I have to stop myself sometimes and think, the creator of the universe is available to talk with me. Do I want to be the one doing all the talking? (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think I have much to offer to him. So I think at this part, Asaph gets quiet and he drops his perspective, and he asks to take on God's, and that's exactly what we see him happening here. So on the slippery road of confusion, that's a safe place to set your feet. It's on God's perspective. We enter his presence, and then we start to see things from his perspective. Oftentimes, uh, when we decide we're going to look from God's perspective, two things pop up immediately. One is the reality of eternity. That always shows up in God's perspective, and the character of God. And that's exactly what we see here. Begin reading with me in verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. All through that. We see eternity, and we see the character of God, don't we? And I love how it begins. Did anybody notice that first word in verse 18? Truly, a word of faith. Remember, we're setting our feet on truth here, and it says, Truly, you, God, have set them, the wicked, in the slippery place. Well, that's a different perspective, isn't it? Because Asaph started out saying he was in the slippery place. And when he takes on God's perspective, he recognizes, no, they are in the slippery place. And God has put them there. God is sovereign. God has determined how each of us will live. Acts 17.26 says, God has determined the exact time and the exact place where each person would live. 
Psalm 16:5, you have assigned me my portion, my cup, you've drawn the boundary lines. God is sovereign. Charles Spurgeon says God puts his foes, not his friends, in the slippery places. Isn't that an interesting thought? Now, I want to back up for just a minute here. When we talk about the slippery place, um, we're not talking about prosperity. We're talking about arrogance. We're talking about wickedness. There's nothing in this psalm that says prosperity is bad. Prosperity combined with arrogance and wickedness is a pretty slippery place, um, but nowhere in there is, is a message that prosperity is bad, okay? Arrogance and wickedness, that's the slippery place, and God is sovereign, and he's put them in that place. And the result will be very clear in eternity. We see that described here. It's their total destruction, their fall to ruin. They're going to be swept away like a dream, like something that wasn't even real and didn't even exist. So we see their eternal destiny, and we also see God's character there. He's holy and he's just. He's going to set the standard. He's going to see all, and he's going to judge all. God is not going to be fooled here. And those who despise him in this life, he will despise in eternity. That's the eternal reality, and it is consistent with God's unchanging character, isn't it? A few places where the scriptures confirm this, Psalm 37, 12. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. And then a great one for this lesson, Deuteronomy 32, 35. This is God speaking. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. That's a new perspective, isn't it? It's a perspective of eternity, and that's how God asks us to look. It seems all the glittery things, the pleasant and good material things that these folks were enjoying, that's not the good things that God promises us. Not for his own, for the pure in heart. All the comfort and ease that we can experience here, that's going to vanish in a moment if you don't have a secure position with God. Their eternal position is in danger. They're in danger of forever being separated and despised by God. So Asaph had misunderstood God's goodness to mean the lesser joys, the immediate, material, sensual joys that we can experience here, that the world has to offer. But God is talking about a totally different kind of good. God does want to give us good things here on earth. And it says that he's the giver of all those good things, including good and pleasant material things that the world has to offer. But God never said those were the best things. God never said those were the end things. Flesh says they're the best things. Flesh says they're the only things. But God has asked us and equipped us to live a life beyond flesh hasn't he? He's asked us to live a spiritual life where he's continually working to enlarge our hearts and to enlarge our souls so that we don't desire these things nearly as much as we desire the best thing, the relationship with him, the experience of a life full of encountering and knowing him. That's the best thing. John 17, 3 makes this clear, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the best thing, and we just get confused and think this stuff here and now is best. Well, God initiates with each of us. He initiates the first encounter with us. He offers to live in a relationship with us because of Jesus' work on the cross. And when we choose to live in that relationship, then we have all these opportunities to keep drawing near to God, to keep encountering him, to just open our soul up and to continue to know him here and be in his presence. That's the best thing. That's what he begins to see here. The truth is God does love to give us good things, and many of us have received good things. Many people in the world would say, if you live in America, you've received lots of good things from God. We like prosperity, family, friends, children, success, health. Many of us have experienced those things, and they're good, but they're not best. Sometimes God chooses to withhold some of those best things. Sometimes he writes our stories differently, and he gives some good things to one person, and he gives other good things to another. And we can't fully understand God's mind and know how he does that, 
But I know this, when he withholds the good thing, the material good thing, it does something in my soul. It makes me long and ache, and it makes me look up and think, I want the best thing. Because down here is not quite so satisfying. I want the best thing. It makes me look up. Um, When I look up, that's when I realize that as good as all these things are, they can never fully satisfy me. They aren't the best thing. Sometimes I think we mistake the good for the best. I'm going to tell you a little story. Seven or eight of you have already heard this before, so take a nap for a minute or something. Um, When I was a little girl, my grandmother began the tradition of giving me sterling silver flatware for Christmas gifts. And by flatware, I'm talking about knives and forks and spoons, what every eight-year-old wants to get for Christmas, obviously. (laughs) So every Christmas, there would be a box under the tree that was no mystery. It was the same size and the same shape every year from the jewelry store. And every year, I would open it and probably in a very bratty tone say, oh, look, a fork. Oh, look, a spoon. You see, my grandmother believed that every young woman needed a full set of silver. And she wanted to take care of that for me. And she wanted me to have the same pattern that she had. So she started doing that for me. And I could not appreciate it at 8 and 9 and 10. And I couldn't appreciate it because I wanted a toy. I wanted a toy, probably a plastic toy that had been advertised for the last two months while I watched cartoons. As my brothers opened basketballs and science kits and weightlifting things, I was envious and I thought I had been cheated because I got a fork. (laughs) Years later, as a young woman, I was living on the East Coast. I was about to deliver a baby and so I could not travel home for Christmas. It was my first Christmas away from my family and I was sad about it. So I got up on Christmas morning and I started to set that beautiful holiday table And I opened a cardboard box where I kept all that silver. And I started to cry. And I was so grateful for my grandmother, for her wisdom and her forethought. And I realized she wanted to give me a family heirloom. She wanted to give me something of great meaning, not a cheap toy. Years later, my grandmother died, and they divided up her silver among her three granddaughters. And they were divided up in a way so that each one of us had a complete set. And now when we have a special occasion and I set my table, I pull out those pieces of silver and they're all mixed together. And I don't know which ones I got as an eight or a nine-year-old. And I don't know which ones came off of her table after 50 years of use. But I know this. I have a family heirloom. And it's priceless to me. It's like this family inheritance. But for so many years, I was an immature little girl. And I couldn't recognize how good it was because I wanted something less. I wanted a cheap plastic toy. I think that's how we look at life. When we take God's perspective and we look at the timeline of eternity and we think, I want prosperity, I want comfort, I want ease, I want successful children, I want a perfect husband. Those are good things, but they're such lesser things than what God wants to offer us. Asaph makes a similar mistake. He didn't recognize the best that God was offering him because the lesser things looked so appealing. That's an error in our thinking, and he confesses it before God. And look at the language he uses. He says, I was ignorant, I was grieved, I was embittered, I was acting like a senseless beast before God in this envious state. I could not appreciate eternity because I was blinded by these lesser things. Psalm 92.6, the senseless man does not know, fools do not understand, that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be forever destroyed. We have the greatest good if we know God and he knows us. That's the greatest good, and that's what matters. And sometimes God blesses us with these lesser goods, and sometimes he withholds them. I think he withholds them so our souls will not be satisfied. So we'll lift that soul up to him and grab on to the best thing. He's created us with a need to live in relationship with him. Only that will produce joy and peace and contentment in our lives.
but I don't think we always believe this, and when we don't believe it, we long for all the lesser joys too. We want the things we can touch and see and count and compare. We want it, the things that are available to us right now. So I think there's a great opportunity for us here to just stop and think for a minute, what do I really think of prosperity and ease? What do I really think of material comfort? And how do I approach God with an expectation for comfort and ease? Do we cling to God because we hope he will provide us with these lesser things? Or do we cling to God because he is the best thing? How do we spend our time in prayer begging him for all the lesser things? It's a great question to ask yourself. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says, And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Okay, that's where Asaph started out, but now he's got God's perspective. He's got the big picture of eternity. And here's what's happening. Asaph's heart is lining up with God's heart. Asaph's desire, his will, his hope is all now lining up with God's desire and will and hope. He sees the big picture of eternity. It's a great example of the process of prayer is changing the person who's praying. The prayer is what's changing him. So even though he was envious and he'd fallen off course and he'd almost slipped, God had continued to be gracious and faithful. And we see how God's faithfulness was demonstrated here in verse 23. First, he reminds him of eternity. He gives him this big picture of eternity and says, eternity is going to offer you life with God. And what about right here and right now? You have life with God right here and right now too. And look how beautifully it's described. I am continually with you. The presence of God all the time. All you have to do is reach out for it. You hold my right hand. That's the protection of God. You know, Asaph started out by saying, I had almost slipped. I had almost stumbled. Why do you think he didn't stumble? God's hand was holding him tight because he is God's. And God is not going to let go of him. You guide me with your counsel. That's God's wisdom. That's God's order that he brings into our disorder and our confusion when we get still before him. And I looked at all that together. God's constant presence, God's constant protection, God's immeasurable wisdom available to me all the time. That's a life of communion with God. Right here, right now. What could be better than that? And don't you love the language? It's such gentle, gentle language. It sounds like a parent with a child, continually with you, holding my right hand, guiding me with your counsel. And again, this view of eternity. Afterwards, you will receive me into glory. That's God's perspective, and it's beautiful. It's the goodness of God fully displayed, and Asaph couldn't see it until he went into God's presence. Now he has a different picture. He started out with this picture of injustice, and now he sees a picture of God's goodness fully displayed, and it's God's unchanging character, his holiness, his sovereignty, his justice, his mercy, his grace, his faithful loving kindness. That's all that he sees now, and he knows it's the best thing he can experience now, and it's the best thing he can experience in eternity. He had an envious heart, that had been pursuing those lesser things and distracted by those lesser things. And now he's got a heart that is relishing the best thing, an encounter with God. I read a great quote. This was from Larry Crabb. Listen to this. If we believe there is more pleasure in things other than God, then our prayers will never be nothing more than using God to get what we want. That's tragic. If we're people, if we're conscious of God, if we know who he is and what he's offering to us, and all we do is go to him as a way to get what we want, what a tragedy that is. What a tragedy. What we learn from this prayer is we don't have to live that way. We learn from this prayer that we take our confusion and our disorientation and our doubt and our questions, and we take them into the presence of God, and we let him untangle them there. We bring them all before him. And what happens there, we open our soul to God, and he steps in, and we encounter him. And an encounter with God always ends the same way. It ends in worship. That's exactly what we see. Worship is one of those safe places where you can set your feet. 
We see worship in these last verses when he says, there's nothing on earth I desire but you. There's nothing in heaven for me but you. God is the strength of my heart. God is my portion forever. I'm going to read some of it again. Listen real carefully. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. God is my portion forever. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. That's worship. It's recognizing God's goodness in everything. And it's total heart change. Because at first it was, there's all this good stuff happening for other people out there. And now you know what it is? It is only good to be near God. That is what's best. And that's where he sets his heart. When we search for the good things out here in the world, they're never going to fully satisfy us. Our search has to be this inward search that starts in our soul and goes straight up and offers our soul to God. And he offers to come into each one of us and make his home in our hearts. I will never be able to fully get my head around that. The God of the universe offers to live in me. It's a beautiful thing and it's all goodness. All goodness. We see one more profound truth and it's such a great example of how to live. Look carefully at the words in that last verse there. It is good to be near God. Pay attention to the tense he's using. It is good. Also, I have made the Lord God my refuge. I have made. It's this perpetual act of being near God. It's the perpetual act of making God your refuge. It's not something you do once and you're done with. They're not speaking in the past tense there. It's a habitual, ongoing act. The most important thing I see there is, ladies, that's a life of faith. It's a resolve. It's every moment of every day and then start the next day the same way. I will resolve to be near God. I will resolve to make God my strength over and over and over again every day. It's habitually drawing near to God. That's the safest place to be. We see this entire prayer as this exercise in staying near God. He begins with his complaint. He takes it to God and he starts with God's truth. He confesses his struggle and his disorientation. He gets still and he allows God's perspective to come in and influence him. He identifies the character of God and he opens his soul to God and he ends worshiping. Who but a God can take you from lamenting and complaining to worshiping and feeling fully satisfied with the very best things? But I'm telling you, it's a disciplined and it's a desperate pursuit of communion with God. Every minute of every day, that's the safest way to live. About 15 years ago, I heard a short little testimony here at Women in the Word. It's changed the way I think about my own laments. It was a lady I didn't know very well, but I respected her. She'd been through a phenomenal loss and a grief. And during praise time, in the months following her grief, she just stood up one day and she said, I'm learning to glance at my circumstances, but to gaze at God. That's how we draw near to God. That's exactly what Asaph did. He started out in those opening verses glancing at his circumstances, and then he turned his gaze to God, and it changed him. Gaze at God. We often have reminders of how frail this life is. This week, we've been so reminded. We're frail as human beings. Um, The things that we love and hold dear are fragile, And so many of us, we long for the good things that this world offers, and there's nothing wrong with longing for those things. God created us to enjoy those good things, but it's interesting how he writes our stories differently, isn't it? We long for family and friends and love and communion and security, and God writes our story differently. And here's the really curious thing to me. Some of us have longed for specific good things in life that God has not provided And because God has not provided them, our soul is wounded and grieved and sad. But some of us have longed for those exact same things, and God does provide them. But for some of them, those good things can become bad things. That become things that hurt us and wound us and bring sadness into our soul. 
And then for other people, they long for the same good things, and God gives them, and they enjoy them, and they're beautiful and wonderful. And because we are fragile and life is frail, in an instant they can be gone. And the result is our souls are all wounded and beat up, all from different experiences, because the truth is we are fragile. We are fragile. The Psalms have told us these last few weeks, we're like grass that withers, we're like flowers that fade, we're like dust. We were not created to put our, our hope, our trust, our faith, to find our strength in other fragile things. We weren't created to trust in fragile human experiences, even though some of them are good and lovely. We were created to place our hope and trust in God the unchanging God, the refuge, the rock. When he says, my flesh and my heart fail, he doesn't stop there. But God, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart. God is my portion forever. We weren't created to manage our wounded souls all by ourselves either, were we? To just drag around beat up little souls while they continue to get beat up over and over and over again with no relief. As people of faith, we have to lift that soul up to God. We have to lift it up to the best thing where we keep our strength and we have to say, heal it, forgive it, fix it, reorder it because it's all confused because that's what he wants to do for us. And all that is available to us. In my opinion, offering this soul up to God over and over and over again, that's not just the best way to live, that's the only way to live. I don't see any other alternatives because the reality is all that God is offering us is himself and he is all good. So why do we want anything else? If we want to benefit from that goodness in eternity and here and now, we have to practice this habitual process. Keep going to God. Keep drawing near. Keep entering his presence. Keep offering your soul out there. That's how you were created to live. That's my prayer, and that's my hope for each of you today. And I've been praying that for you for weeks now. It's a blessing to live near God. It truly is. We usually end where I pray a blessing over you, um, but I want to end a little bit differently today. Um, This week's been an interesting week for lots of us. Um, We've been praying lots, and maybe you've been in that with me. Um, I've, had, I've had my own psalm kind of praying in my, in, in my heart. And it's a psalm that just reminds me um, that God is there waiting when I lift up my soul. And so I want you to just listen to this song. If you want to close your eyes and let it be your prayer, I want you to let it be your desire and your resolve to live your life placing your trust and your hope and your soul with the very best thing. Thanks. The troubles of my heart They're tearing me apart How I need your saving hand To grant me a new start I call upon your name, save me from my enemies and cover all my shame. I will lift my eyes from this fragile life, for you will rescue me. You are my Prince of Peace, and I lift up. Forgive 
my doubting heart and lead me back to you. Help me to believe your love is all I need. Even when the storm is strong, you will provide for me. I will lift my eyes from this fragile life for you. Thank you. That was um, beautiful. Um, yeah, thank you. I have two announcements. Um, today we have a newcomer's lunch today directly after here. Um, just go upstairs and it's in the fellowship hall. Um, and then next week will be your small group fellowship. Um, your table leader should have already given you all the information. Um, but if for some reason you missed it or um, y'all didn't discuss it today, just take